Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Hello there, Greg here. And before I start this week's podcast proper, I need to ask a favour, if I may. Uh, We're almost midway through this second season of Witch Investigates, and we would love to hear your thoughts on what you've enjoyed, what you've found interesting, maybe even what you're going to do differently, having heard what we discovered. So if you do have a minute to answer a couple of quick questions, you can do that at witch.co.uk forward slash investigates. Maybe throw in a comment about our previous season on sustainability and greenwashing too, if you enjoyed that. Witch.co.uk forward slash investigates. Thanks. Right, enough preamble. On with this week's podcast. A few nights ago, I was at the front of a long queue at the supermarket and all my shopping was packed up into my bags and I waved my contactless card over the payment thingy and... Yeah, my payment did not go through. So, of course, I tried again. Now, sweat was starting to form on my brow because I knew that I was holding up the shoppers behind me. So I went back into my wallet, I grabbed another card, and... Phew! I picked up my bags, hot-footed it out of there, and having been researching this week's episode, I knew that I'd just experienced what millions of people around the world had felt on the 1st of June 2018. However, they hadn't been fortunate enough to hear that forgiving... It was a Friday afternoon in the UK. People were flooding out of work and they were heading home. And when they tried to pay for their shopping or their work drinks or their dinner out, they got the payment declined and they weren't alone. Zahlung abgelehnt. Pago rechazado. Payment refusé. This was happening across Europe, and it kept happening for the next eight hours. By the end of the day, it was estimated over five million transactions had been denied. And what was the cause? Well, after our previous episodes on the hacking of smart devices and connected cars, you may be expecting me to say it was caused by a cyber attack. But on this occasion, it wasn't. In Spain, the Guardia Civil sent a tweet with a, a gif of a panicking Captain Jack Sparrow, classic, with the words, I translate, Don't worry, if you can't pay, you haven't suffered any theft or hacking. Visa has suffered a fall in Europe that prevents processing payments with its cards. A spokesperson for Visa announced that they had no reason to believe that this was associated with any unauthorised access or malicious event. The issue, they say, was the result of a hardware failure. In the days that followed, TV and radio hosts both sides of the Atlantic were doing phone-ins, asking if we are too reliant on technology, too reliant on digital transactions. One academic interviewed was Peter Hahn, Professor of Banking at the London Institute of Banking and Finance. He told Sky News that, quote, consumers should be prepared for the possibility of cyber risks at all times and should always have backup payment options. 
Indeed, many of those whose card payments failed were asked if they could pay in cash, and, well, quite a few of them weren't carrying any. Fast forward three years, and we're even more reliant on a cashless system. According to a report that was released this year by UK Finance, 27% of payments in the UK use contactless. as a 20% rise in just four years. Are we too complacent about the potential risks of using digital money? Yes, individual transactions can fail. Whole systems can clearly collapse. But where is our money most protected? In a traditional high street bank like HSBC or NatWest? In a digital-only bank like Starling or Monzo? Or how about in cryptocurrency? There's lots to get into today. I am Greg Foote and this week I'm joining forces once again with the Witch Money podcast team as today we are asking how safe is your digital money? Which Investigates is a podcast from the UK's consumer champion. We work to make life simpler, fairer and safer for everyone. In this new season, I'm exploring concerns around tech and security. Are you being tracked online? How do you spot a fake review? And is your tech always listening? Those investigations and more are on the way very soon. And if you've got something that you'd like us to investigate, do get in touch. If you're on social media, I'm at Greg Foote and which is at Witch UK. Or you can email us on podcasts at witch.co.uk. Coming up, we ask if physical money may soon disappear forever. If there is very few people using a payment method, the method tends to disappear from the market because it doesn't make any sense to have a payment method that very few people accept, then it doesn't fit the purpose. So that could happen with cash. I ask, how easy is it for someone to steal my contactless card details? We've recreated this kind of scam in the past using technology that we've bought very easily on online platforms, very cheaply. We've been able to skim details from contactless cards and then use those details to go ahead and make purchases. And I find out whether the poster boy of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, is a safer place for our money. Also, we hear what the future of money could look like, from banks pivoting to their own digital currencies. I'm Tom and I run the Central Bank Digital Currency Project in the Bank of England. To the suggestion that digital-only banking may not be run by banks in the future, but rather the likes of a well-known tech giant. Across their three platforms, WhatsApp, Instagram and Facebook, they have just about over half the world's population as active subscribers. So if they chose to turn the switch on to actually enable us to use that system, they would by definition become the largest retail bank in the world. I'm going to start today's episode by talking about the tooth fairy. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. You're likely thinking Greg has finally lost it. But if your childhood was anything like mine, then if you lost a tooth, you'd put it under your pillow, right? And then when you woke up, if the tooth fairy had been, there'd be a monetary replacement, you know, 10p, 
20p, maybe even 50p for a front one. I still remember a friend from school telling me that he got a pound, a pound for every tooth. Someone had a generous fairy, I tell you. Here is why I bring up the denticular donor, though. A 2019 report from money.co.uk found that almost one in three parents now pay pocket money digitally. And payments labelled tooth fairy make up 13% of those digital payments into children's accounts. Certainly the trend is that people are using less and less cash. The vast majority of transactions now are card transactions and the vast majority of those card transactions are contactless transactions and that's quite a radical shift from the last decade. Here is a man that we're going to be hearing a lot from during today's episode. My name's Gareth Shaw, I'm the head of Money at Which. What a job title. So how did we get here? to a world where the tooth fairy is internet banking. Well, it is time, again, for a spot of history. And for this episode, our guide is the host of the Witch Money podcast, Lucia Ariano. Now, to begin with here, Greg, we're going to have to go back, and I mean a long way. Tens of thousands of years ago, people paid for things with all sorts of stuff which were thought to be of value. Beads, copper, or even shells were used around the world as invaders and explorers arrived in new territories. It was 5,000 years ago that the first known currency came to be. The brilliantly named Mesopotamian shekel arrived in around 650 BC in Asia, with armies using stamped silver and gold coins to pay their troops. As time progressed, the idea caught on with Roman, Islamic, Indian and Chinese coins coming into use hundreds of years later. And with huge empires emerging across the world, money soon became an instrument of political control, where taxes could be claimed from citizens to support the elite and fund the armies needed to protect their newly conquered lands. Now, here in the UK, the production of coins began as early as 886 AD. For many centuries, production was in London, initially at the Tower of London, where it was even looked after by Sir Isaac Newton for a while, but eventually moved to Wales in the 1970s. Since decimalisation in 1971, the pound has been divided into 100 pence, and our currency has remained largely unchanged. Until 2017, that is, when a new 12-sided coin was introduced. Ironically, that was the same year that debit card transactions overtook physical money as the most common form of payment. Barclays introduced the first card of its kind to the market in 1987, 30 years later, and the card was king, made even more popular by the invention of contactless. And now we are, of course, also seeing the rise of digital-only cryptocurrencies. Thanks, Uchir, for that quick jaunt from copper coins to cards to contactless to crypto. I'm going to start with contactless cards, how they work and how safe they are. Over to Gareth to cover that first bit. So a contactless card contains a chip that holds your account information and an antenna. It's a a kind of loop of copper wire around the card, which picks out power from a signal sent out by the card reader. And a card reading terminal admits a, a kind of electromagnetic field. So when the card enters this field, it's powered on. And this chip and the reader communicate with each other using an encrypted language. So basically, it's a little chip in your card that talks to a card reader to transfer money over contactlessly so that you can pay for goods. A surprisingly simple bit of kit which saves you carrying and counting out cash for every purchase. 
But does a contactless card make things safer? In 2016, which surveyed over a thousand people about their views on contactless cards, 73% agree that it makes it quicker to pay for things. But over two thirds of those surveyed were concerned about their contactless card being stolen and used to make purchases. So if your card is stolen, how much of a shopping spree could a thief go on? There have been new rules introduced by the EU, funnily enough, that will limit the number of transactions that can take place before you're prompted for a PIN. That said, we've left the EU and now we have diverged from some of those rules. So your contactless limit has now increased from £45 to £100. And you will only be prompted for a PIN when your cumulative contactless payments reach £300. So there is a little bit more risk on a contactless card. They might be a bit more attractive for a fraudster because you can spend significantly more in one go on your card than before. We're recording this podcast in early November, meaning that the new £100 contactless limit has only been in place for a few weeks. It's far too early yet to tell whether this new limit has opened up the door to fraudsters. But as Gareth just explained, it certainly could. But it's not only the risk of your card itself being stolen. This headline confirmed what I'd heard tales of. Scammers with skimming devices and laptops steal contactless card data. The article, which I'll link to in the show notes, contains a video claiming to show a pair of scammers covertly filming at Manchester's Trafford Centre. They walk up behind some shoppers and they wave a gadget over their pockets and bags. Now, the gadget is a card reader, which scans the card information without the shoppers knowing. Then they take those details and they go and spend over £1,000 on an internet shopping site. Scary stuff, huh? Well, thankfully, these scammers weren't scammers at all. It was a stunt carried out by a company called SkimSafe that make cards that protect contactless cards near them from being skimmed. But is this theoretically possible? Could thieves skim your contactless card information like that? They can. And we've recreated this kind of scam in the past using technology that we've bought very easily on online platforms, very cheaply. We've been able to skim details from contactless cards and then use those details to go ahead and make purchases. But can it be done in reality? And does it happen regularly? There's not a huge amount of evidence that it does. The skimmer would need to get very close to your card, which, yes, could potentially happen on a packed train or tube or bus. But according to the UK Cards Association, they have never received any report of this happening. And they go on to add that the pickpocket would need a legitimate business account and a registered terminal to take any payments. What's more, card readers will turn down transactions if they encounter other objects such as other cards or keys or phones. That is all good news. But as we have heard, it technically could be done. So always best to stay vigilant. If you're really not comfortable with contactless technology, there are lots of other ways that you can choose not to use it. I mean, some banks allow you to turn it off completely on your debit card. Others will allow you to fix your own limit on there as well. I mean, that's a relatively new introduction. So you could set your contactless limit to £10. So if somebody does get hold of your card and tries to go on a spree, they're limited to transacting at £10 at a time. The drop in visas services that I mentioned in the opener was down to hardware, not hackers. 
But cyber attacks on banks do happen. In fact, according to Security Magazine, in the first half of 2021, ransomware attacks on banks, that's where uh, hackers paralyse a system and then demand payment to return it to normal. Those attacks increased by a huge 1,318% on the previous year. Now, that's not them getting hold of your money, though. It's just blocking your access to it. But there is something else of yours that is valuable. And not just to hackers, but to the banks too. It is time to talk about data. One of the things that people really love about cash is that it's anonymous. It can't be tracked. You don't have a bank looking over your shoulder, seeing what you're spending on. Banks do routinely package up your spending data and sell that on. It's anonymized. So, you know, you, you don't have a marketing company knowing, Greg Foot, you've been here and you spent that. So I'm going to try and flog you this thing. But what they do do is package up spending data of their customers. They anonymize it. They put people into buckets. And then they might have a partnership with a firm that sends you deals that they think might be relevant to you. So this goes on in banking. It goes on with your credit data as well. You know, the likes of Experian and Equifax, the credit reference agencies, they package up your data and anonymize it and sell it on to marketing companies. So I think we need to be wise to the fact that our data is a huge commodity, whether it's our spending data or our financial history data. And it is being used already. As Gareth explains, the great thing about physical cash is that a transaction can't come back to you. It isn't listed under your name. So your private transactions stay, well, that private. However, in this era of contactless cards and online transactions, banks can collect info on everything from the brands you're most likely to buy from to the locations that you do so. And they can make lots of money doing it. As one article recently put it, quote, your bank is even better positioned than the Googles of this world to manipulate your spending choices because they don't have to guess what you like from your search history. Indeed, a Forbes report from 2018 found that the likes of MasterCard and American Express made upwards of $400 million selling customer data. And the thing is, it's perfectly legal for them to do so. However, as Lucia explains, there is a banking revolution on the way. In January 2018, the Competition and Markets Authority, or CMA, forced the UK's nine biggest current account providers to open up their data, finally allowing customers to see what information they held about them. It was done as part of an initiative called Open Banking, and in short, this allows a customer to own their data. They can then choose to share it electronically so that other providers can gain access to it, giving them a chance of getting a better deal on financial products, such as a cheaper overdraft Elsewhere. There are many apps and companies all regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority which facilitate open banking, meaning a person could access all their financial accounts and bills through one platform. Unfortunately, though, these providers could be at risk to cyber attacks. But then again, so can the banks themselves, and which we'll be watching closely to make sure financial and data regulators work hard to safeguard consumers in this context and build trust in these new services. There's a handy guide to open banking on the WITCH website, and we'll make sure to put a link in the show notes.
I can see the benefits of open banking. It gives the consumer control over their own data. And if something goes wrong, the bank associated with the payment is still responsible for resolving any potential issues. But when it comes to banks and the safety of your personal data, well, there is another red flag. What's strange is that despite a bank holding just a huge amount of sensitive data that really is your life in an account, we see evidence of banks lagging on some basic security measures, some that you would find in place when you log into your email or or log into your social media account, things like two-factor authentication. So you put in your login details and then you might get something to approve on your mobile phone just to verify that it's you, whether it's a text message or a unique code or a one-time passcode that you've got to enter. Some banks aren't using that. And that is concerning that banks should be having the strongest barriers. Yes, they always argue about getting the balance right between customer convenience and security. And there is a balance. You don't want to put up too many barriers because it might put people off engaging with their account altogether. But personally, and I'm sure many people would agree with me, I'd rather have more barriers to jump through when it comes to my bank account than less. It's a difficult line to tread. And here is one reason why. In a witch study carried out earlier this year, we exposed the challenges that disabled people face when carrying out everyday banking tasks. The results found that almost 20% of respondents find it difficult to use a bank's security measures, with that number even higher for those with memory difficulties. It's always important to consider all users of these technologies. For the rest of today's episode, I want to look to the future. My name is Gavin Brown. I'm an associate professor in financial technology at the University of Liverpool. My research, speaking, writing and teaching as well is all focused on the future of money. Listeners to the Witch Money podcast will already be familiar with Gavin's work as he is their regular Captain Crypto, their money master, or whatever alliterative superhero title you would like to give him. Before we explore the future of money, though, there is an obvious elephant in the digital currency room that we haven't talked about yet. Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a pre-coded currency. And what that means is that the currency itself was designed and is effectively being run as computer code from its very origins back at the beginning of 2009. The 3rd of January 2009 was when the first Bitcoins were created, and they've continued to be created ever since. Now, in terms of how you go about getting one, there are many different ways to do it. You could register with an exchange, so you have to give some identification, passport information, etc. And once you then have an account, you can then deposit funds with that exchange, and then using those same said funds, you can then start to buy and sell Bitcoin if you wish to, or many other types of cryptocurrency as well. This feels like the right moment to share with you uh, the time that I was chatting to Gareth at Witch and I had a bit of an existential crisis about the nature of money itself. Money is essentially an illusion, okay? I'm giving two somethings for my coffee and and I get a coffee back and, and the coffee provider takes those two somethings and puts it into their own account. Now, we agree here in the UK that those somethings are called pounds, right? I think, although this may have it may be something that's come to me from films. I think I believe that 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 those pounds, those somethings, do actually exist somewhere as gold in the Bank of England. However, we can decide to print more pounds on notes, presumably without more gold in the Bank of England. So do pounds therefore exist? And does cryptocurrency not exist because it's all digital? Wow, that is a really mind-boggling question. 
The reality is, is that the central bank in the UK can create money. It can print that physically, but it can also pump it into the system so that it can be maneuvered with each other. There isn't an equivalent physical asset to match every single piece of currency that's out there. So there, you know, if there are a trillion pounds kind of coursing through a bank system off people's debit cards and into uh, purchasing a property or something like that, there isn't an equivalent physical pound coin or a 50 pound note for that money. You know, they're not exchanging that money. If more cash needs to be in circulation, they will put more cash into circulation. But obviously the amount of gold reserves doesn't change. So how do they print more money? How do they put more money into circulation? Technically, does my £10 note then actually really become worth £9.99? pence? But then in the same way, because interest rates change and everything else changes, it's all a blooming illusion. and It's worth whatever somebody at the top decides it's worth anyway. Am I having a breakdown? Yeah, I think you are. <laughs> You're not. I mean, once you really start thinking about this, it, it does boggle your mind. Anyway, yes, I'm not going to think too hard about that one. Uh, Gareth did drop me an email, though, after our chat, and he explained that of all the money in the UK, only 4% is held physically in the form of cash. 96% is held electronically. Back to cryptocurrency then. And according to a Cambridge University study carried out by Dr. Garrick Heilman and Michael Rauch, it's estimated that there are somewhere between three and almost six million users of cryptocurrency worldwide. There's a whole family of different types of cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is just one of them, uh, the most popular child, if you will. And what appears to be the biggest motivator for someone to use cryptocurrency is this. Our currencies, like pound sterling, is controlled by and issued by a central bank, in our case, the Bank of England. Cryptocurrency is not controlled by any country, any treasury department, any central bank. I discussed this further with money maestro Gavin. In my mind, a cryptocurrency, in its truest form, is distributed in nature. And all that means is, is that rather than being controlled by a single institution or person or body, instead it is controlled by a community. How does our money operate today? It's typically controlled by a central bank or a government or a currency board or a monarch. So basically people and institutions of power. Whereas a truly decentralized or cryptocurrency is effectively not controlled by people and different personas with agendas, but instead is controlled by an aggregate community of people. And that is the key. Cryptocurrencies aren't controlled by an ultimate power. They are overseen by a worldwide community and their worth isn't set by an institution either. And there's another potential benefit of crypto too. Here in the UK, there are 1.4 million adults with no primary bank account, which is a huge number. A lot of people look at cryptocurrency as a way to almost liberalise and potentially one day bring financial services in a more cost-effective way to lots of people, especially from emerging nations. Bitcoin, or another member of the crypto family, could offer a financial future to those excluded from the traditional banking system. But as today we're exploring the security of your money, how does the safety of cryptocurrency stack up? So if you make a mistake in your personal banking now, and I'm sure we've all done this, you can phone up a help desk. I've accidentally sent money to the wrong account. It looks like I've been double charged for this. I've made an error here. There's all these kind of support functions that we get from our banks. That doesn't really exist in Bitcoin and many cryptocurrencies as well. There's lots of famous examples. There's always the chap in South Wales. I think it was his girlfriend or his ex-wife threw out his computer, which 
had the access details to many hundreds of millions of pounds worth of Bitcoin, and he lost them. So forgetting your password and asking for a new debit card in the post can happen quite quickly in our existing system. If you lose control of your Bitcoins in this system, then it's gone forever. There is no recourse. When it comes to traditional banking, if an authorised financial services firm goes bust, the Financial Services Compensation Scheme protects customers from losing some of their cash. It protects up to £85,000 of savings per person, per financial institution. And that's not just banks. That also covers mortgages and insurance and investments. But when it comes to cryptocurrency, as Gavin explained, no such protection exists. And how does crypto stack up when it comes to theft or scams or potential exploitation by criminals? Hundreds of people that have called us and written to us have been scammed into purchasing cryptocurrency or thinking they're purchasing cryptocurrency. But it does seem like it's rife for corruption for scammers. We are in an environment at the moment that's incredibly low interest. You know, the best savings account will pay you 65p for every £100. Interest rates are really miserly. And so there are people out there naturally who are looking for a better rate of return on their money. And cryptocurrency keeps coming up as the investment opportunity where people are falling victim to scams. That's not to say cryptocurrency is a scam. And that's not to say that people haven't made serious amounts of money from investing in cryptocurrency. But what we do see is that cryptocurrency has been a springboard into connecting vulnerable people up with scammers. And that is really, really concerning. Search engines are awash with horror stories about the dangers of falling victim to scammers. One BBC News article tells the story of Joseph, although that's not his real name. It's a guy in his 70s who was looking for a way to top up his retirement savings. Assuming he was making profits, he was drawn into a cycle of investing more and more in order to get more money out. And eventually he lost more than £250,000 in life savings. Now, as with any new technology, nefarious individuals will always look to exploit it. My wife's a teacher, for instance. Her school was hacked and the data was stolen and a ransom was demanded in form of Bitcoin. Which may make you think Bitcoin is the currency of criminals, right? You've got to kind of turn that on its head. It's not Bitcoin that's caused this. Bitcoin is a consideration that's being asked for. And one of the reasons it's being asked for is because in some ways it's stronger than fiat currency. Fiat currency there being a government issued and backed currency. If these ransom people who hacked said, can you can you wire this amount of money to this account number and sort code, then they're found straight away, right? So actually, in some ways, this negative press that often comes out around Bitcoin is actually a positive endorsement of the currency. So the decentralised and anonymized nature of crypto can make it more attractive to these nefarious characters, but... Most players in the space, they would almost argue that if that regulatory oversight was strengthened when it came to cryptocurrency, that would only help cryptocurrency. It'd help us to take the benefits and try and do away with some of the, the bad actors, which invariably come with any new technology. It's not the fault of the technology, it's human beings and how we decide to apply them. The difficulty, though, the various regulators and banks and tax authorities have around the world, though, is that in any type of strengthening of regulation, the kind of secondary effect of that is the legitimization of the currency or cryptocurrency as well. And it was a similar discussion around all this that led Gareth at which to say this. Personally, I don't view it as a currency. I view it as an investment. And I think it should be viewed as an investment. I would only feel confident having some form of digital currency if that was overseen by a central bank. And that's something that's being explored at the moment. You heard that right. 
a digital currency overseen by a central bank could be happening sooner than you think. Hi there, everyone. I'm Tom, and I run the Central Bank Digital Currency Project in the Bank of England. This is Tom Mutton, and he told us about CBDC, a central bank digital currency. I like to think of central bank digital currency as being a little bit like a digital banknote. And because this would be money provided by the Bank of England, it would be a very secure and trusted form of money. And £10 of central bank digital currency will always have the same value as £10 of cash. And really importantly, central bank digital currency would exist alongside cash. They'd be complements for each other. So as Tom explains, the idea wouldn't be to replace cash, more to offer an alternative, especially as the world keeps striving for a more digital future. But they wouldn't control all aspects of any potential rollout. It sounds like they'd plan on a similar system to the one we have now with banks and building societies. We would operate the core technology and infrastructure and would provide the item of money. But that users, uh, whether they're shops or whether they're consumers or households, users would deal with private providers, particularly digital wallets, but maybe people providing cards, who would provide the interface and they would deal with customer services, they would do the onboarding, sign people up to the service, And therefore, when dealing in CBDC, you would use a private sector wallet or card, but your money would be recorded at the Bank of England and provided by the Bank of England. And we think that's a good combination by allowing people to play to their advantages. 80% of the countries around the world and their central banks are either researching or piloting or implementing this type of technology. So expect to see a digital dollar, a digital pound, all of those will be on the horizon. The Chinese are in a state where they've already piloted At the province level, many tens of thousands of users have begun downloading their digital renminbi or the yuan, which is their currency, and actually using that to buy and sell goods. The fact that at the time of the launch, they've also taken a hard line on cryptocurrency comes as no coincidence. You know, you would imagine that, you know, if you're going to launch a state-sponsored product and there is an existing product out there which can operate outside of state control, one of the first things you want to do is to frustrate the thing that you're trying to effectively protect yourself against in order to leave the way clear for you to dominate that playing field. A central bank digital currency may also be launched in the face of the quickly reducing use of cash Greg talked about earlier. Hi, I am Gabriela Girul. I am the head of analysis and policy in the payments department at the Swedish Central Bank. We are now in a situation where the use of cash is so marginalized that it's um, almost becoming difficult to use cash for payments. So even that situation, the central bank uh, began to analyze whether we needed to rethink our product, that is cash, and update it to modern society's needs. If there is very few people using a payment method, the method tends to disappear from the market because it doesn't make any sense to have a payment method that very few people accept, then it doesn't fit the purpose. So that could happen with cash. According to Eurostat, 84% of the Swedish population made purchases online in 2020, the highest total in Europe. But could these moves by central banks around the world have shadier motivations? Or could shadier reasons for exploring the technology be at play? One reason why states are very interested in this is that as you drive cash out of your economy, it shrinks the shadow economy. It makes the ability for people to move money in, as you say, nefarious means that much more difficult. 
Because if you imagine, if you and I were in the same room now and I passed you a £20 note, there is no digital signature. There's no audit trail. No one knows other than you and I. And in fact, you could deny it ever happened after the event and vice versa. As soon as you push people into a digital-only system where we crowd cash out of the economy, that does enable you to be able to see that much more about what your citizens are doing. And again, it comes back to privacy and data, something we put to Tom from the Bank of England. Money only works if people trust it. So maintaining high standards of privacy is going to be a non-negotiable for us in a CBDC system. The task force, so HN government, Bank of England, Information Commissioner's Office, are going to think about how to protect and promote privacy. And indeed, there's a range of techniques we can use from privacy enhancing technologies through to setting up the CBDC system in such a way that personal data is segregated and safeguarded. For now, it's very much watch this space on a centralised digital currency. But if you're interested in hearing more from Tom, then do go back and listen to our recent Witch Money podcast episode on the subject. And Greg will put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks, Uchir. And a reminder that if you would like to know what is happening in the world of money every week, there are new episodes of the Witch Money podcast every Thursday. So what might the future of money look like? We've basically got three contenders for the future of money. We've got decentralised currency that we're calling cryptocurrency, the likes of Bitcoin. We've then got central bank digital currencies where nation states are effectively responding with their own versions, calling them digital dollars or digital pounds, whatever it might be. Um, And then the third arm, which is perhaps the most interesting slash scary slash risky, and that is of corporate issued currencies. This is where the future gets even more um, worrying, monopolised. And I'd love to hear what you think about this. So this is the likes of, you know, Facebook who are talking about their Diem project, originally called Libra, issuing their own token on their platform. They have just about over half the world's population as active subscribers. So if they chose to turn the switch on, to actually enable us to use that system, they would, by definition, become the largest retail bank in the world. Yeah. Now, how does the prospect of that make you feel? Having Facebook, or should that be Meta now, potentially owning the biggest bank in the world? Let me know. Get in touch on social. I'm at Greg Foote and which is at which UK. Regardless of whether we're all paying each other in Facebook money or in the Bank of England's own digital currency, we need to make sure that our currency and our data are both protected. I asked Gavin, as Associate Professor in Financial Technology at the University of Liverpool, where he would put a large amount of money to keep it as safe as possible. Would he go for a traditional high street bank or a digital only bank or into crypto or into one of these emerging currencies that we've just been exploring? In terms of safety, I'd have no problem at all with a high street bank or an online bank. No problem at all. I also feel fine with cryptocurrency as well, though, because I feel I've got a decent handle of the technology. I will follow this, though, by repeating what Gareth, which is head of money, said earlier. Personally, I don't view it as a currency. I view it as an investment. And I think it should be viewed as an investment. As former US President Benjamin Franklin once said, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. So finally, then, back to the question of cold, hard cash. Will it become a thing of the past? Should it become a thing of the past? It's absolutely critical that cash 
and access to cash is protected. Yes, we are on this journey from a largely cash payment society to a increasingly digital payment society and contactless payment society. That's absolutely inevitable. But we have seen the infrastructure reduce quite radically over the last few years. More than 4,000 bank branches have closed since 2015. And that has a significant impact on a local community. I've been to these places in the course of campaigning on this issue, places like South Morton and Devon. This is an agricultural town. And they have seen their last bank branch close. And what the people around there tell me is that they see less customers because fewer people are going to that town to do their banking, do a bit of shopping. They're just losing out on business. So the lack of cash in these communities and usage of cash and then access to cash through a bank branch is, is really, really devastating. What we've always wanted is for this transition to be overseen and managed by government and regulators. Which have already had success on this, with some of the UK's largest retail banks making public commitments to protect the cash network as a result of our campaigning. Chancellor Rishi Sunak even promised to do so in a previous budget too. Plus, as we've heard in this episode and in the previous ones in this new season, anything online is at risk from hackers. As Tom Mutton from the Bank of England said earlier, any future digital currency should be seen as a complement to cash, not a replacement. And we here at Which agree. The digital revolution is already here. What comes next is exciting to consider, but we must consider it from all angles and we must ensure that no one is left behind. I hope you've been enjoying this tech and security season of Witch Investigates. If you'd like to know more about Witch's access to cash campaign, just head to witch.co.uk forward slash access to cash. Next time, we're going to be leaving digital money behind us and diving into the murky world of fake reviews. Talking of which, we have got genuine unbiased reviews and advice every day on witch.co.uk. And if you would be up for leaving us a glowing genuine review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, we would really appreciate that as always. One more little announcement. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're doing something a bit special. We're going to be recording an episode of the podcast live with a panel of experts. So if you'd like to watch the live live, then you can do so on the Witch Facebook page on Wednesday the 17th of November. Or if you're listening to this podcast after that date, you'll find an audio recording of the event as our mid-season bonus episode. Now, the live event is a chance to put your questions to a brilliant panel of guests. So if you've got a question about anything that we've covered in this season already, or anything tech and security related, to be honest, you can send it over. You can send it on social media. I'm at Greg Foote and Witch are at Witch UK. Or you can use our new email address, which is podcasts, with an S, at witch.co.uk. That is it for today. This episode was presented by me, Greg Foote, and Lucia Ariano. Written and produced by me and Rob Lilly. Editing and original music is by Eric Briar. And our executive producer is Angus Farker. Special thanks go to Richard Headland, Gareth Shaw, and the rest of the Witch Money team. And I'll be back soon with our next investigation. <laughs>